If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter number 1. Ecclesiastes chapter number 1. Now the book of Ecclesiastes is called by many the hardest book of the Bible to understand because it looks at life from what appears to be a perspective of unavoidable disappointment or discouragement. But the book, it does capture the problem that people often have in life, and that's the big question. What's the point of, of it all? What's the point? What's the reason for this? Do you remember that old commercial? I think it was, may have been for Pepsi back in the day. And the, the guy he would say was supposed to be an actor, and he would say, what's my motivation? What's my motivation? What's my motivation for taking part here? What am I supposed to be saying about this? And you may come to a place in your life, maybe not now, Maybe you've already had this happen to you where you had to figure out what your purpose was for life. And you've <laughs> I'm such a shallow person. I don't think that I've ever really had this that kind of this is my this is my purpose for life. I'm a very I'm very shallow. I mean if I can drink coffee, that seems like my purpose. <laughs> if I could you know, do a little fishing. That seems like my purpose. I'm not a very deep thinker. I have had some friends who are very deep, introspective people, and they find themes in movies that I don't see. Uh, Mitchell was at the house over the weekend for the holiday. He had to go back to college this morning. But Mitchell, he's a very, he's my polar opposite in so many ways. He's listening to music, and he was listening to some very slow, beautiful music, and I said, I just don't get that. I mean, if it's not, you know, really loud and really fast and kind of, kind of hurts the ears, I don't, really, I don't really go along with it because I'm just so shallow. And so I haven't really had this moment in my life where I thought, what's, my, what's the reason for my reason for existence? Now, at some point, people will need some reason to go on, some reason to live for. I mean, what I'm saying to you is I don't know that I've hit the spot where I had to find a new reason to go on. Because, to be honest with you, my life has been pretty good so far. Pretty good. I married young, married well, married well above, my, my, <laughs> well above myself. <laughs> I, uh, I was raised by Christian parents who loved me, and I didn't see a lot of um, difficulties that they saw in their lives cause, because they were raised in different kinds of families. Um, I've, you know, I've... My life has been pretty good, and I haven't really had to look for that deeper meaning to go on. And you say, well, the reason, the reason why my life has gone really well so far, I wouldn't say is because I've been an active participant in making my life go well, because to be honest with you, I don't know how I got to where I am. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't take a bunch of steps that got me to here. It was just... Uh, you know, I believe in the sovereignty of God over all things. And I say, well, I think the Lord, this is the Lord's lot for my life. And you say, well, he loves you more than me. I don't think so. Because I think when I get to heaven, the amount of my rewards are going to be very small compared to some of what you guys have gone through because you, my struggles have not been as severe, severe as yours. I hope, you, I hope you understand what I'm saying about that. So, at some point, though, people usually look for a reason to go on, a reason to live for. Now, I have a friend who has been in ministry in Greenland now for about 20 years. He went to Greenland to be a missionary. There's only 57,000 people on the island of Greenland. And uh, 
So right now they're in, their, they're in the winter time over there and things are getting, are getting cold but not too bad. But in about, by January, February, the, the island will be all completely frozen in and there will be fewer and fewer things to buy off the shelf. Now in Greenland, even though there's only 57,000 people on the island, they have the highest suicide rate per capita in the world, mostly amongst teenagers because it looks like there's not a lot going on in Greenland. Your chances of getting a really good education and getting a good job in Greenland are pretty low. And so because there's no, no real motivation for them to try to go forward or advance themselves, they're, uh, they, they turn to other things for satisfaction, and they're disappointed in those things. Many people find themselves ensnared by hopelessness, and so they turn to various forms of substance abuse and high-risk lifestyles to find something to make life worth living, that little, that little burst of excitement or adrenaline that makes it all worthwhile. Now, no one is immune to this kind of thing. Famous author and outdoorsman Ernest Hemingway, who I guess he had a house here in our area and over on Lake Michigan somewhere, Ernest Hemingway, if you read his biography written by one of his, uh, one of his, I think it's his brother, will tell you that he took his life at age 61 because he was depressed and he was in bad health. He was a, a libertine, an Epicurean, you might say. He found a lot of joy in his life, in living and drinking and, and sport and women. A lot of pleasure there, but when he got to be 61, having very high blood pressure, his health starts to decline. He can't do what he used to do. And so all his sources of pleasure that he had for his life are now gone. What's the point now? What's the point in going on? This is a problem preachers have sometimes. Sometimes when a preacher has to get out of the ministry or can't preach anymore or retires, they really struggle because the thing that makes a preacher the most happy is, guess what? It's the act of preaching. And then when you can't do that anymore, you say, well, what's, what's my reason for being here? There's a pastor from uh, Bridgeport, Michigan, down by Saginaw. I think that's where Bridgeport's at. And uh, he just recently had his whole, his whole uh, voice-making apparatus removed because he got cancer, you know. And he had a little bit of it taken out and then a little more. And now he can't talk at all. He's made his, his whole, he's, I think, he's, 60, I think he's, he's 69 or 70 years old, but now he can't, he can't do anymore what he's been doing his whole life. And I've thought about that. What do you do? What do you do? And what are you going to do when you can't fish anymore? What are you going to do when you can't? One of my deacons in Texas one time, he told me, we were talking about losing your senses. And I said, I'd hate to lose my sense of sight. I could handle going deaf, I think. And I think I could handle losing my sense of sight. He'd say, well, I think the worst would be to lose your sense of taste. No, I haven't lost my sense of taste. But I can't imagine a life without tasting anything because I've tasted some really good things. My mouth still has coffee taste right now. <laughs> And over the holiday, I tasted apple pie and that honey-glazed ham and green bean casserole, cranberry sauce, cranberry from a can, the only way it should be served. <laughs> Open the can, flop it in the bowl, cut the ridges. <laughs> that's, that's my preferred method. So people often lose their motivation for living. Where am I going to find some joy at? The most notable celebrity death of my lifetime was Kurt Cobain, the founder and lead singer for Nirvana. And his death in 1994 stunned me as a teenager because there was a guy who had a claim 
very popular, making lots of money, had access to all kinds of things that, and opportunities that I, could, that I didn't have. But at age 27, he puts a shotgun in his mouth and takes his own life because he lost his purpose for living. They published small excerpts from his journals from that time. And I, I read them in uh, a fine Christian publication called Rolling Stone. <laughs> and you see, this guy, he was, he was desperate for something. Crying out to God but not being able to find God. Having had God as a teenager, then rejecting him. And just, just, a, just a real shock to me. So, even the Apostle Paul. So you may say, well, that's just because these people are not Christians. Even the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, he said that I have despaired of life itself. Now, that's a, that's a spirit-filled apostle of the early church who saw things that you and I will never see. He even said, life has gotten so difficult for me right now. The burdens and pressures of this life are so much that even me, I am dis- I've despaired of life itself. Because even, even when you're a Christian... It doesn't mean your life is just going to go great, does it? I mean, I think, I think about my life going well so far, and I could look ahead and I think, well, <laughs> the music's got to stop sometime. And when the music stops, what's going to happen then? So you just you start to think about things in this way. So, the quest, so to question the, the meaning of life or the purpose of life seems to be a normal thing. Now, in the providence of God, we have this book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes, which is inspired Scripture. And this is something you have to remind yourself about the Bible all the time. It is inspired Scripture. These are the words of God, so we must take these words to heart. Now, when you get to the book of Ecclesiastes and you start to read it, you may read it and scratch your head a lot. But let me give you a hint about Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a sermon. It's a sermon. What is it? It's a sermon written by a preacher. It's only 4,500 words long. It's not that long. Last Sunday, how many of you guys are here last Sunday say amen? Now, I preached last Sunday a very short sermon, right? <laughs> I preached a long time last Sunday. And so there's a new feature on Sermon Audio where you can upload your audio to Sermon Audio, and you can hit auto-transcribe, and it will transcribe your sermon for you. And I'm always curious about word count in my sermons because a certain, this number of words means this long of time. So last week, that sermon was just, just less than an hour long, just less than an hour long. My manuscript typed out was 3,700 words. The transcription number of words was 8,300 words. I came here with seven pages of notes last Sunday, a manuscript seven pages long, 14-point font because I'm having trouble seeing lately. So I made it bigger. Seven pages long. The transcription of it was 15 pages long. Now, that's, that's a fairly lengthy sermon, I would say. An hour-long sermon is probably, you know. Every once in a while, well, it could be too long, couldn't it? <laughs> but the little letter of Ecclesiastes is only 4,500 words long. It's a very brief sermon. If you could play it through a listening device of some kind... You could listen to it in about 18 minutes, not very long. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said you can read the Bible through in 24 hours at pulpit reading speed. The way you read the Bible for the pulpit usually is a little bit, little bit quicker 
maybe, than reading aloud, but you can read it through. It's not that long of a book, the Bible itself, compared to others. So here are a few things to keep in mind when you read Ecclesiastes. The first thing to keep in mind is that it's, it's written in a particular style. It's called wisdom literature, which means it's meant to be read and thought, thought about. Read and think. Read and think. I'm reading uh, C.S. Lewis's book, God in the Dock, right now. And when I'm, I'm reading that, and sometimes I find myself going into skim mode. You guys ever skim over something? Just looking for key words or key phrases. You're skimming because you've got a lot of reading to do. And I find myself going into skim mode. I say, Terry, stop. You need to slow down and read and think. Rehearse those words in your mind. Think about them more carefully because they're important things that are being said there. And so when you read Ecclesiastes, you need to read it like God's wisdom literature. This is inspired scripture. We need to read it and to think. A second thing is to read it with a unified message. It has basically a single point, and it's this. Life with God can be both good and bad, but it can be finally, eternally good. Because Christians, we live now and we live later. We live now and we live later. Every person you know who is a Christian who has died, who has passed away, who's entered into eternity is alive. They are just as alive as you and I are today. In fact, one one theologian says, people who are dead in Christ, they are more alive than you and I are today. They're more alive based on the idea that they're more aware. They have a better picture of how things are. So life with God can be both good and bad, but it will finally end with eternal good. And kind of the the second part of that unified message is that life without God can also be, guess what? Good and bad. If you tell somebody, if you you need to become a Christian, your life will be better, there's some people you'll say that to who will laugh at you because their life is going so great. Life without God can be both good and bad, but it will eternally, finally be all bad. Because you're going to meet God with a neg- in a negative status. If you meet God on a negative status, you're not going to enjoy what comes next. So the third thing, the third key to reading Ecclesiastes is to read it with a better understanding of things. Because we don't live in the, under the old covenant. We live, we live under the new covenant. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ has made the world that we live in very different. The new covenant has come. We have the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, and we see things in a different way. We who are Christians are not living to win God's favor or to win God's satisfaction. We as Christians are living under the perpetual smile of God, which has been won for us by Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ when he was baptized by John the Baptist? Now, this is a a big moment in the New Testament. Jesus comes, and John the Baptist is there. He's preaching. And proclaiming the, the gospel of the kingdom. And John sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And John, Jesus comes to John and says, I need to be baptized by you. And what does John say? John says, No, no. 
I need you to baptize me. But Jesus says, suffer it to be so to fulfill all righteousness. That's a big, that's a big question. What does it mean, suffer it? Why should, why should you be baptized, Jesus? You don't need to be repenting of your sins. You don't need to testify to a new life. You are the Son of God. You're without sin. So what does, John, when, what does Jesus mean when he says it has to be this way? Well, in that moment, Jesus, in his baptism, identifies with sinners. That's what G. Campbell Morgan says. Jesus identifies with sinners. He says, I am one of you. And he's baptized. Now, because that, that symbol is so big, he's identifying with sinners, God reacts to that identification. Because as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ, and then a voice from heaven says something. And what does that voice from heaven say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So God, so Jesus is saying, I'm identifying with sinners. He's going through the baptism that all sinners receive. And then as he comes up out of the water, the Father says, this boy is not a sinner. He is my beloved son. He's in a positive status with me. He doesn't need this to be right with me. He's already right with me. Now, my friends, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God the Father declares you just before him, and he imputes to you his own righteousness or the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and then you live the rest of your life as a believer with God the Father looking at you and saying, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased because God is completely pleased with you through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to you. This is a big, so we live in the new covenant. This is a new covenant promise is those who put their faith in Christ are just. Romans 8.33 Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. It is God that has declared you innocent. Declared you innocent. So, we live with a better understanding. So when you read Ecclesiastes, you may say, well, man, this, this just really stinks. I'm not going to make it. Well, you read it differently because we're in the new covenant. Now, Let's start with who is giving us this this sermon in verse number 1. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. All the old scholars say the writer of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. All the new scholars, all the new writers say it is anybody but Solomon. Which is kind of annoying sometimes because there's great diversity. Because here's what's going to happen. The old scholars said it was written by who? Solomon. New writers say written by who? Anybody but Solomon? You wait 20 more years, guess what the new scholars will be saying? Solomon wrote it. <laughs> this is the way it's been going. The Gospel of Mark's a good example of that. For, for uh, 200 years, they said that Matthew was the first gospel written. And then, 19th century, 20th century, everybody changes and says, no, Mark was written first. But now, all the accepted scholarship is saying, guess what? Matthew is first. So just you see, see these cycles that take place. Now, the new scholars may be quick to say, well, verse number one doesn't say Solomon. It says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So it doesn't say Solomon. And then David had lots of sons, so it could have been one of his sons. Then you have this word preacher here, which some people don't care for that translation. They prefer to say collector. 
the collector, Koholoth. Now, this person who they say is anonymously named as Koholoth, they say, well, this is who wrote it. And uh, maybe it's like the book of Hebrews. Now, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Let's ask Jim Ackerman because he knows. Bruce. You guys remember the Apostle Bruce? (laughs) That's just Jim's way of saying that we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Dr. Al Mohler, he says, God didn't tell us who wrote Hebrews because it doesn't matter who wrote Hebrews, and God doesn't want us to spend a lot of time worrying about stuff the Bible doesn't say. Now, that's probably a good rule of thumb for us all, right? So, but this term preacher here is striking because the underlying word is koaleth, which can be translated collector. Now, a preacher is a collector. A preacher is a collector of wisdom, a collector of ideas, a collector of stories, and a collector of jokes. He doesn't do this for his own personal gain or to make his brain fat and juicy. He does this for the benefit of other people. Because to be a preacher is to be a declarer of truth to other people. You want other people not to learn what you know, but to help other people know what God wants them to know. So a preacher is a collector, and he is a a sharer. He gives to other people what he has learned from God's Word. Now, if it is Solomon who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which I agree with the old scholars, because I hate to change anything. If it is Solomon... That makes a lot of sense to me because Solomon makes some claims in Ecclesiastes that only a person of great wisdom and opportunity could make. Only a person who has great wealth and power could do what he has written. I want you to look at verse chapter 2, verse number 1. Here's an example. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this is also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom, and, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from water from which water to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks. I mean, he goes on to make some claims. He says, listen, you should listen to me about wisdom and about the vanity of seeking, of finding pleasure because I have tried everything. Tried everything. Only a person with great wealth and opportunity can try everything. Now, we live here in Sheboygan, Michigan, which is a great place to live, amen? A great place to live compared to Texas, which is a great place to be from. (laughs) So, Solomon, he says, I have really tried everything. Now, you can only try so many things here in Sheboygan. You're going to be limited by where you are in the world, and you're going to be limited by your pocketbook, right? But Solomon, he has no limits. And don't forget the fact that he is a king. A king really has no limits, because a sovereign has the power to do whatever he chooses. Nobody tells him what's right and what's wrong. He tells you what's right and what's wrong. 
So Solomon is free to engage all of his senses. So I think Solomon is the the right person to say. Now, if Solomon wrote this, there's a second reason to think that he did, is because the wisdom that he uses here, the, the things that he discovers, is incredible. Now, when Solomon became king of Israel, there's only two kings who ruled over Israel and Judah combined, and that was David and Solomon. And when Solomon made his first offerings as king to God, Solomon said to God, or God said to Solomon, actually, he said, God said, Solomon, I love you. I'm going to give you you a, a bonus here. Whatever you want, I'm going to give you. Just ask, ask it, whatever you want. Now, I wonder, I wonder what you would do. If, if God came to you in a vision tonight and said, I will give you whatever you want, whatever you want, what would be the first thing you'd ask for? Think about that. What would be the first thing you'd ask for? Well, what happens is Solomon, he says something unusual. He says, I would ask for wisdom. Give me wisdom to rule this great people. Give me wisdom to do this job. And God says to Solomon, because you have asked for wisdom and not anything for yourself, you could have said wealth or prosperity or lands, because you didn't ask for any of those things, I'm going to give you the wisdom and the dough. Oh, isn't that good? So, if God comes to you in a vision tonight and says, what do you want? What are you going to ask for? Wisdom. <laughs> wisdom. So Solomon is able, he has this endowment of wisdom. We see this demonstrated in his in the narrative of his life in 1 Chronicles. So Solomon is a wise man, a man with great opportunity. And so if Solomon makes conclusions, then we should, we should pay attention to them. All right. Now notice the verse 2. Here's Solomon's thesis, his point. I told a local pastor I was going to preach, do some preaching from Ecclesiastes. He said, you're going to get everybody depressed before the holidays, huh? <laughs> I said, why not? It's a time of joy and festivity, so why not bring everybody down, right? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, this is, a, this is an odd word, vanity. You ever heard that song, You're So Vain? You probably think this song is about who? <laughs> You're so vain. You see, you see somebody in the bathroom looking in the mirror, and they're combing their hair, and, you know, and they're... What do, you, what do you say about a person like that? They're kind of vain. Instagram has made it really great for us, and, you know, snap all kinds of selfies of yourself, and you can use all the filters and make yourself look really nice, look really... <laughs> and you put, put them out there, you know. I used to play basketball with a guy in uh, Oklahoma, and he had a T-shirt, had a picture on it, and... Uh, I said, hashtag no filter. <laughs> it was a picture of himself. That was the funniest part. <laughs> How many people have a t-shirt with their own face on it? You know what I'm saying? It was just so funny to see. So we, say, we would say that's vain. We would say there's no point that there's no profit in that. It's empty. But this word vain is translated in, in different translations in different ways. Now, the, the lexicons tell us that the... the the underlying word hebel has an uncertain meaning. 
We're not really sure what it means. You'll find this about a lot of biblical words, especially in the Old Testament. The scholars say that concretely, the word hebel could mean mist, vapor, or mere breath. Now, that's something that's not substantial, right? So if you're outside this morning shoveling a little bit of snow out of your driveway, you're breathing and there's some vapor coming out. There's some breath. Maybe in the summertime, I was driving the Sheboygan football team somewhere on a bus, and we were, we, were, we were driving up to Gaylord on our way over to Kingsley, and ahead of us, it looked like the whole world was on fire, just this smoky haze. And I said to the football coach, Coach Schultz, I said, is that a fire? He said, no, that's just fog because of the difference in temperature and moisture. I mean, it just, he's like, it'll disappear when we get over there. I was like, yeah, right. But guess what? It disappeared. There's been times here in Sheboygan when I come down Town Line Road to that four-way on uh, VFW. You guys ever been to that? that? <laughs> when you get to that four-way, I've been there in the fog, and you can't see the house across the corner over there. And you stop, you know, and you look. You don't see any lights, but it's so thick like pea soup, right? You roll down your window and listen, you know, and then floor it and pray. Vroom! <laughs> That's, but, it, but it's not like that all the time. Sometimes it's really clear. So that's one way of thinking about vanity. It's something that's misty, vapor, something there but, not, but won't be there long. Then there's an abstract meaning, which could be translated that fleeting, elusive, or mysterious. One scholar from the Old Testament, one Old Testament scholar says that Hebel here should be translated enigmatic. Enigma. Enigmatic, enigmatic, says the preacher. It's all enigmatic. Now, that's cut and dried, isn't it? <laughs> it's a puzzle, a riddle, an enigma, something to try to figure out. It's all a mystery, a puzzle. So we could say that life is then a mystery. It's a puzzle. It's something that's hard to figure out. Because, and we know that to be true because life can be a conundrum, can't it? Life can really cause us to go, what is going on here? We have that old fable. Remember Aesop's fables? The tortoise and the hare? And they have a race? Who's going to win? Well, who would naturally win between a turtle and a hare? A rabbit. Well, everybody says, you know, the rabbit. And that's what it shows us, that the race is not always to the swift. The best team doesn't always win, like yesterday. <laughs> Before the service read, you know, he said, oh, so you're wearing your Michigan colors today. You got the blue and the gold. <laughs> so I'll say something about it in the sermon. <laughs> so obligation satisfied. Sometimes the best team doesn't win. Sometimes the best guy doesn't get the girl. Sometimes the good people get fired and the bad people are left behind. I mean, life is hard to figure out. Life can be a real puzzle sometimes. We may not, in this life, get to walk in the light all the time. We spend a lot of time in the dark. And we will say to ourselves sometimes, we'll quote from this old hymn, Why must it be thus all the day long? That's from the song Further Along. 
Solomon says here, this is Solomon's thesis statement. He says, everything is a puzzle. It's hard to figure these things out. And then he moves on throughout Ecclesiastes telling us that that's true. He makes a thesis statement. He makes a primary point, and then he defends it as he goes along. Now, in verse number 3, Solomon talks about work. What is gained by work? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, I'm asking you a question. How many of you ever worked? Say amen. How many of you have gained from it? Say amen. So, Solomon, I don't know what you're saying, big dog. Because if we're all working our backsides off and making our bank accounts fatter and fatter as we go along, getting more and more stuff, nicer and nicer cars, then there has to be gain. What does man gain by all the toilet which he toils under the sun? What is real gain? What is real enduring, lasting gain? Because this is the frustration that you'll see that, that comes up. Gain. He makes this statement, gain, because every generation actually does the same stuff. Because no gain is permanent. It's always temporary. You always have to go back and do it again. You build a nice, beautiful home. Build a nice house. Eventually, you're going to have to do something to it. You're going to have to maybe put a roof on it. You may have to level it. My, my mother-in-law, bless her heart, she's been plagued with foundation problems for the last 25 or 30 years in this little house she has in Arkansas. She's had the house leveled, re-leveled, and leveled again. I mean, you got a slab house and the foundation gets a lot of whack. I mean, it can cause, it wreaks havoc with your plumbing and all kinds of stuff. So even though you may have something substantial, let's say you got an old car. Maybe you got yourself a, I don't know, 1976 Gremlin. <laughs> Classic beauty. <laughs> got yourself an old car. Maybe you got yourself a brand new car. And you bring it up here to northern Michigan. Start riding these here roads. What's going to happen to that beautiful thing? I bought Leslie a car a couple years ago. And now Lacey's driving the same car. And I remember looking at it and thought, you know, this car is not rusted too bad. The muffler was really loud. And, you know, and we kept it that way for a while. That way I know where she was <laughs> here all over town. And, uh, but the first time I jacked that car up to get underneath it to do something, I was like, whoa. I should have looked under this car when I bought it. Very rusty underneath. Brake lines of rust. I mean, all kinds of stuff wrong with that car, you know. Anyway, your gains are always temporary. Every generation usually has to redo the work of the previous generation. Sometimes the coming generation replaces completely what the next one built because what they are going to do is going to be better. Each generation outperforms the next, next so that the, and does it so completely that the previous generations are always forgotten. Now, 
I'm, I'm a kind of at that at an at a odd age, I guess, or position in, in life where I remember when Tom Brokaw wrote the book, The Greatest Generation. You guys remember that? The World War II generation, which launched America forward in huge ways, went to, went to war, incredible things that those people did. Now, that generation is passing away. I don't think there are that many World War II veterans left in the, in the nation. But I don't think that my kids really fathom or understand what that generation achieved. And their kids, it's just going to be a blip on the screen. They're not going to think about it at all. All over America, in little towns like ours, just like right down here on Western Avenue, at the corner of Western and Court, right there on the right, there's a, a memorial to the soldiers, to veterans. People just drive past it all the time. I've never, I've never stopped to look at it. I have, there's no names in any of my kinfolk there. Maybe if there were, it would be different. But the generations, things fade away. I play basketball every Tuesday and Thursday at the Sheboygan Rec Center. And right as you walk up to it, you guys ever been to the Rec Center? It's such, a, it's such a neat old place. It reminds me of working out at Mickey's Gym in Rocky. <laughs> That's the vibe it gives off. But right there in the front yard, there's a sign. And it says Rec Center. And there's a name on it. And I'm going to say the name. And I, don't know how to, I don't know if I can say it right. It's Pete Kendrzorski. Kendrzorski. Pete Kendrzorski. Now, that's a name. I've seen that name. I mean, every Tuesday and Thursday. I have no idea who it is. But somebody does. But it looks like that that, that building was actually maybe built the year I was born, 1978, if that's the date that's there. But that guy's memory has passed out of my mind. I've never asked anybody at the rec center who it was. Maybe you know who it was. I don't. The same way with, you see this name around town a lot, a lot, a lot. Gordon Turner. I, I don't know when he died. He was around here a long time. Uh, I think uh, Pastor Curry gave me a, little, a couple of little books, The History of Sheboygan, that way I know what I'm dealing with. <laughs> and in that book, I, I read about Gordon Turner. He had a little bit in there about himself. And I thought, oh, and I know who he is. Came up here in the newspaper business, a single guy, you know, and then he fell in love and stayed here. There's all kinds of these things. How many of you guys own a snowblower? I got one. Did you know, according to this little history book I got in my office, the snowblower, guess where it was invented? Guess. Sheboygan, Michigan. Mind blower. How come you guys don't know that? Because his snowblower has been superseded. <laughs> because our snowblowers have uh, auto suck and auto blow. <laughs> What's it called? Uh, two stage. And if you got a snowblower machine like Ron Roush does, Ron Roush has a little gazebo built on his, not a gazebo, uh, a little uh, a little house. <laughs> That he stands inside of, you know, and, you know, and tells Mary, shovel faster. <laughs> the generations, they forget one another. And it cannot be helped. No matter what we do, 
it cannot be healed. No matter how great or colossal your work is, it will be forgotten. History bears this out over and over. Man, I, I love to read, I'm reading his, the history of the European continent from 550 to 1500. And I'm reading, I'm thinking, I have no idea the names of these people. I wasn't a history major, but just, it, it, you realize there's so much I don't know. Then while I'm reading about the history of Europe, I'm thinking about how little I know of the history of Africa in the same period. And I ask myself, is there a history of Africa from the same period that I could read? I know very little about the history of Russia. All I know is that Russia is the sworn enemy of all Americans. Because I grew up in the 80s. Remember? The Iron Curtain, the CCP, Ivan Drago. If you know who Yvonne Drago is, would you raise your hand? <laughs> History just shows us people forget. And no matter what you do or what I do, we're probably going to wind up forgotten as well. And this leads to futility. Sometimes this possesses people with such, grips people so severely <laughs> They'll say, well, I'm going to do something to leave my mark. And so they're going to do something. Some people try to do something really good. Other people try to do something really bad just to burn their name into the memories of others. But over time, they're forgotten. Now, the preacher goes on to tell us here that the thing that endures is not man, but it's creation. Verse 4. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. What remains here is the earth. And what's striking about it is that the preacher says, the sun and the earth, they just keep going on doing the same thing they've always done. Just doing the same thing, repeatable. Sacred monotony, you could call it. It's the same sun, same wind, same water. The same heavenly light that we enjoy, Noah and his sons enjoyed. The world just keeps on going. Man, we try to make gains with our own efforts. In one sense, we're all like the people of the, um, who built the Tower of Babel. Or let us make a name for ourselves before God comes and wipes away our memory. But God's works just keep on going. Now, it's worth pointing out that God's creation, the created world, is a sustaining system. Solomon glosses over it here in just a few words, but... The created world is a, is a magnificent thing. 
In creation, God has created a fabulous machine that's been encoded with laws that still provide us with incredible and fascinating fields of study. God's world is a marvel to think about. And then in verse number 8, he talks about this weariness. We're trying to make gains. I'm telling you that in what, in what, there's no gain that's permanent. But some of you will say, oh yeah? Well, watch this. You know what the most common last words of a redneck are? Hold my beer. <laughs> you're, you're not going to make it. Some people will say, well, I'll show, I'll do something substantial. I'll do it. But there's a weariness that comes with it in trying, in working at it. You have a person over here who's working it to crack some code, to, to make a breakthrough. And over here, there's somebody else who is doing the exact same thing, and they're going to break through. I had a friend in college. His name was Dale. And Dale was a scrub tech. As a, that was his job. And uh, he, was a, he worked in the, uh, uh, he was a scrub tech, is that what he was? He worked in the operating room with, with the instruments. And these little scopes they put inside your body, those things, they have to get them to the same temperature as your body. And when Dale first started out in that field, they used chemicals to keep those instruments from, the lens from fogging up on those little cameras inside there. Remember how you used to put no fog on your car window? You ever, ever do that? Make your heart winter, not fog. Same kind of stuff. Not same kind of stuff, but similar idea. But Dale, he figured out that what if we figured out a way just to heat these instruments up to body temperature, and then there would be no change in temperature and it wouldn't fog. And so he got permission from some, some doctors he worked for, and, they made, and he brought in a little, uh, basically, it was a little, that little thing you put on your back when you hurt your back. Help him, Patty. Uh, <laughs> heating pad. He put that in there, heated it up, worked perfectly. So then he thought, well, i got to find a way to make money off this. You can't just tell all the doctors to get a heating pad. He wants to make some revenue from it. So he figured out a way to make these disposable things, and he was applying for the patent. But the day he filed his patent, somebody else did the exact same thing. And I said, well, Dale... My dad always said, if you get a great idea, write it on paper, put it in a letter, and mail it to yourself because you have the postmark on there. He said, yeah, I did that. It doesn't work. <laughs> so it can be very frustrating. Very frustrating. There's a weariness. There's a fatigue that comes from trying to find satisfaction or just to make yourself substantial before the Lord, before the world. Now, we're about 45 minutes in, according to my calculations. And I got one more page left. These are the tough choices in a pastor's life. Well, you know. I'll tell you what. I'm going to finish my sermon, and you don't have to come back tonight. He says in verse 8, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ill the ear filled with hearing. Never satisfied. 
always in pursuit of something to give us more meaning, new beauties, new sounds. We live in, a, we live in a, an age in history where the arts are providing for us incredible things to look at, incredible things to listen to. They're constantly producing stuff because people still go. People still buy movie tickets. They still go to concerts. They, they want to hear more. They want to hear more. One writer says that we're made weary by the pursuit of these things. And then he compares and says, but nature is never weary. The sun never slows down, never stops. The waters and winds keep on going. They never complain. They never look for anything new. The sun running the same circuit over and over and over again. And the, the earth the same way. Nature is never weary. Because it's doing exactly what God wants it to do. Now in verses 9 through 11, he tells us again, there's nothing that's going to be remembered. This is, this is a striking reading. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. In the 1980s, some guys were digging in Texas, and they dug down in the ground. They got down to, it was about 16 feet into the earth. And they found some wires down there, some copper wires. And they had some people come out and look at it, and they said, well, it looks like Texas had the first underground utilities ever in the ground. Somewhere from Louisiana, they dug down 100 feet, and they found nothing. And the Cajuns, they said, we are wireless a long time ago. <laughs> nothing new. Now, all, now, this is the thing to think about. All, all, the, all the scholars kind of take a different stab at this. Is there new stuff or not? That's a good question. Is there new stuff or not? Now, I'm, I, don't, I don't know what to do with it. I got a phone somewhere. I gave it to Valerie earlier. But, I mean, I have, a, I have an iPhone. Was there an iPhone 20 years ago? No. So is the iPhone new or not new? Well, new things, but not new ideas. Remember, remember that guy, the artist dude that painted, painted the, uh, you seen the, thing, the picture of the guy who invented that he signed a helicopter long ago? Michelangelo. New Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci. New ideas, new things, sometimes they're just forgotten. This is kind of what the scholars say. Things are forgotten, but rediscovered, and people call them new. There's not really anything new. We are faced with new stuff, but often there are no, there's no new ideas to think about. And the main point is that people forget what's happened before. You guys ever heard of a guitar player, piano player named John Lennon? You guys ever heard that name? Now, what group was he a part of? The Beatles. The Beatles. I listened to Alistair Begg this week give a talk about how he came to know that the church he's at now, where he's been 40 years, was the church where he should be. And, he, and here's what he said. He said, uh, he said, me and another elder went to call on a, a deacon's wife who was in a bad way. She was laying on her floor in the living room on her back trying to get some relief. And so we we're talking to her. And so we felt bad to be sitting while she's laying. So we, so we laid down there on the floor beside her. We're all staring at the ceiling, talking, you know, and, and trying to spend the time with her. And uh, he said, 
But the thing that really said, he said, I thought that was great that we could be that comfortable with one another and just kind of get on each other's level. So I thought it was really great. He said, but the thing that really sealed the deal was the fact that we all three were listening to the Beatles at the same time. <laughs> he said, he said, if there was a church that would, where the deacons, deacons and elders could all listen to the Beatles together, he said, I figured that's the church for me, the right place. Now, John Lennon, my dad, my dad hate, hate me. My dad hates the Beatles with a purple passion. He kills every beetle he sees. <laughs> no beetle farms at our house, right? So, and my dad would always say this. He would say, John Lennon said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus Christ. And I thought, I don't know. My dad would say some things sometimes, and you know, I, didn't, I didn't have Wikipedia and Google to check them out back in those days, but that's, John Lennon really said that. He said, we're bigger than Jesus Christ. In 1966, here's what Lennon predicted. He predicted that Christianity will shrink and vanish. But it looks like the Beatles are fading. Of course, we know the number of the Beatles that faded. John, he died. The guitar player died. Ringo and Paul are still alive, but they can't live forever. Fading. One one's one commentator says that in another generation, the Beatles, the Beatles will be a memory. A memory. It's hard, it's hard to think about that, but be a memory. It will be a memory. Then he goes on to say, imagine there's no linen. It's easy if you try. <laughs> so things don't, don't last. And so the big so what? The works that we do will be forgotten. But the works that we do for Christ will not be forgotten. Our lives, our influences, our contributions will be forgotten by the world that we live in and the people around us. But a life lived, by, lived for Christ will not be forgotten. And the reason for that is, the works that we do for God, they will be enshrined in His mind forever. God values our work. And He possesses the power of eternal memory. And He remembers the works that we do toward His name. The things we do for His glory, He remembers those things. And He will never forget them. It's a striking reading in Hebrews 6.10 where it says, God is not unrighteous to forget your work which you have done for His namesake. God remembers your works. And so if you are working for Christ, you can rest assured that your works will be remembered and that your works will follow you. Remember Jesus our Lord? What did Jesus say? Do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth where thieves break through and steal, where moths eat and rust corrupts. But rather, therefore, lay up for yourselves, what? Treasures in heaven where none of that stuff can happen to them. The works you do for Christ matter the most. He values our works. He remembers the works of Adam. And Adam will be rewarded for those in the kingdom. 
He remembers what you've done for him. He knows what you have done with absolute clarity. Nothing foggy. Sometimes I have these conversations at our house, and I'll say, oh, so-and-so told me this, and I'll say, no, they didn't. I'll say, yeah, I'm sure they did. No, because I told you that. Because we forget. But God, he does not forget. The works of Christians follow them into the eternal realm, and there the great God of heaven will reward us for our labors. And I have a lot of verses here. I'll read them out to you if you want to write them down. These are verses that say God will not forget your works, all right? I'll read them off to you. Hebrews 6.10. Hebrews 6.10. Matthew 10, verse 40 through 42. Matthew 10, 40 through 42. Proverbs 19, 17. Proverbs 19, 17. Isaiah 44, 21. Isaiah 44, 21. And 49, 14 to 16. And Malachi 3, 16. Isaiah 44, 49, Malachi 3. God does not forget. Now, the other side of that is true also. God does not forget the works of non-Christians either. Because Revelation chapter 20 tells us that non-Christians, when they meet God in the last day, their works are going to be judged by Him. The last day, before they enter into eternal judgment, God remembers the works. God, there's only one thing that God can forget. You know what it is? It's your sins. And there's a bunch of verses about that too. You want to write them down? Here you go. I, I didn't do them all. I didn't do them all, just a few. Psalms 103, verse 12. Micah 7, 18 to 20. Now I'm going to read these last ones to you. Then we'll be done. All right? Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. Verse 25. I... I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Listen to Isaiah 44, 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. One more in Isaiah 38, 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. My friends, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all of your sins, all of your sins, I don't mean just those little penny-ante sins you committed when you were five years old. I don't, I don't mean those sins you did as a teenager because you were young and dumb. I mean every single intentional sin you have ever committed. Every sin. All your sins. Expunged from your record. 
removed from you for all time through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the reaction to that by most people is, I don't know if I can believe that. Well, I know. It's, it's a big deal. Seems too good to be true. But it is true. It is true. It is true. It's true. God's word is replete with the evidence of that. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe that he died for your sins. And all your sins will be blotted out. They'll be taken away. And it gets better. Because the Holy Spirit takes a presence with inside of you. You have a present, persistent, personal comforter. And then when this wretched, rotten life is over, when the winter of our existence has passed, <laughs> into the happy land, into heaven's glorious place. Not one word about snow in heaven. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the patience of these people that listen to this talk this morning. Now, Lord, I don't know the heart of every person who's here. I don't want to know the heart of every person who's here because what I would learn would be, well, it would be sad. It would be depressing to me probably. But, Father, you know what's in every heart, you know every person. And, Lord, I pray that you would take some of these words and stick them down in the hearts of these people so they might find some hope, find some purpose in you, knowing that what's done for you will have eternal rewards for them. I pray that you would open the eyes of these people here who are not Christians. They would see their sin, that's what it really is, a giant anchor dragging them into the pit. And they could see Christ with the sword of the gospel as the only one who could break that chain. And they would turn to him. Now, Father, I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I pray you would help us as we got a lot of work we're going to do here today or the next few weeks. Help us with it, we pray. In Christ's holy name. Amen.